You're listening to the Surf Simply podcast, bringing you news and opinion about surf culture, characters, coaching and competition from the team at the Surf Simply Coaching Resort. For more about Surf Simply's video coaching courses, go to surfsimply.com. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to episode 59 of the Surf Simply podcast. We're recording on Monday, the 11th of June, 2018. My name is Harry Knight, and with me today is Jesse Carnes. I'm back, everybody. Tommy Potterson. Hello, everyone. Uh, and Teal Beckenbach. Hi, guys. Jesse, you have big news on many fronts. I got big news. Yeah. Congratulations. Thank you. Yay. I got engaged. Will has uh, asked me not to embarrass him, so I won't. Um, but yeah, a couple of months ago, we got engaged, so we're so excited. We will be having a wedding in Costa Rica. Very cool. So we're looking forward to that. And another congratulations to us because we bought a property in Palada. Yeah. Awesome. awesome. Ticking all the boxes. Just need the uh, white picket fence now and you're all set. <laughs> we're all set. <laughs> the best thing about the property and podcasters, you guys or listeners, you guys should know, is it's diagonal from where I keep my horse. <laughs> so <laughs> more animals by the property, which I'm so excited about. So we'll have um, the dogs and then the horse in eye shot, which will be really cool. Uh, what is your animal count at the moment? Uh, well, it just was one down because we were fostering an animal, but we're... Three dogs, two cats, and a horse. <laughs> a lot of animals. It's a lot of lives to look after. Yeah. But it's, um, the property is pretty awesome. So it's a half acre. So it's enough space now for all of the creatures. Does that mean you're going to keep Ozzy with you or is Ozzy still going to stay just over the way? Ozzy is way too much work. Yeah. So he'll be staying across the street at Carrie's. But he'll come over for breakfast. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Sunday, Sunday brunch with the horse. Um, it's also... The property is right along the reserve, which is really cool. Tommy, you'd love that. It's my, it's... One of my favorite places here in Nassara is to go along the reserve and check out the birds. Oh, man, there's so many. Yeah, and just for you listeners, I'd like to clarify that these are actual birds with wings, not females. <laughs> <laughs> Especially all of you British and Australians. <laughs> love checking out the birds. <laughs> yeah, I'm not next to a nightclub. <laughs> Called the reserve. Yeah. <laughs> Good name for a nightclub. <laughs> right. Until you've not done a podcast before. No, I haven't. Our newest, our newest member of the team. Yeah, new member of the team. Never done a podcast. This is the first one, so hopefully I don't bugger it up too much. <laughs> I have a feeling we're going to be laughing a lot, listeners. So <laughs> we are a giggly crew. We've got the uh, the occasional lady number two. <laughs> Again, what about you, Tommy? Have we been up to much? Well, since the last podcast, not that much, but since I was last on, quite a lot. Over the break, um, I went to Mexico. I'm going to talk a lot about that later. And I was there for the end of the surf contest that Asher was in and he spoke about in the last episode. Mm -hmm. But I then stayed, stayed on after to do some free surfing and had a great time. But I'll tell you a bit about that later. Very cool. I loved following your Instagram stories while you were there, Tommy. I was like, oh my God, all of the Mexican food looks so delicious. Food was good. The people were great. I found an interesting type of dog that apparently is just in Mexico, the hairless dog. <gasps> oh. I think they're called Solos or something, X-O-L-O. I have no idea. Just no fur, no hair. It's like 
smooth rubber. It's great. <laughs> <laughs> Add them to the farm. Yeah, I wanted to bring one Do home. they have to wear sunscreen? No, a lot of them did have really bad sunburn though. <laughs> so surely that means yes, yes. they just <laughs> nobody does. Yeah. <laughs> oh, cool. And uh, Tia, what did you get up to over the break? Uh, over the break, I had my parents come and visit. It was their first time being in Nosara. And uh, so I brought them out and took them for a surf. First time surfing as well. And then we went over to R and all and I had them hike up a four hour hike um, from the volcano. So that was fun. And then I went into San Francisco and did some running in the redwoods, which I'd never seen those trees before and they are spectacular. Cool. So it was fun. Awesome. So on the uh, I, I know on the subject of your property, Jesse, <laughs> Will has been borrowing my newest toy. I, I know. I bought myself a weed whacker. He's so uh, obsessed with it. A strimmer for you, uh, for you English listeners. Uh, yeah. Um, with all the, the the flying the paramotor, I've been kind of a l- bit limited re- uh, up till recently because I've had to fly from the beach and I've had to wait till low tide and make sure all the conditions lined up. And uh, I managed to get permission from a local farmer to use a field. Um, but then the wet season came around and everything just started exploding. And I went out one day with a uh, machete and decided I'd just, you know, trim down the runway a little bit. <laughs> Turns out it's freaking hard work. Hours later. <laughs> <laughs> I was there for like two hours and I think I chopped a 50 meter runway or something. <laughs> Not, nowhere near long enough. So I then went to the ferretry and bought myself a, a petrol powered strimmer weed whacker thing. And I went back the next evening and just went, <laughs> and just clawed through everything, which is brilliant. When you walk into a field with a with like a machete, you feel pretty pretty manly. But yeah. that is nothing compared to having a big engine, some you know, some mufflers on your ears, and just going. I feel like that's that's a, that's a big moment in life when you you know the the first time that you get yourself a power tool. Yeah. I feel like the first time you get yourself a petrol-powered tool, <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. another step up. <laughs> I think that's what made Will so happy. He like immediately borrowed it from Harry and brought it to our property and was like skipping around the yard with the weed whacker, <laughs> just like, look what I can do. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not sure that's the approved technique. <laughs> Very uneven uh, strimming. <laughs> yeah, exactly. He he basically made a design of like a horse figure in the, in the, in the grass. <laughs> Harry, how long does... Uh, runway have to be um well not that long it depends slightly on the wind conditions right um theoretically with good wind i can take off in the 50 meters that i chopped out with the machete yeah um if the wind's not very strong um then i've got to run a little bit further so landing landing uh, you don't need very much at all you can almost kind of spot land on, on on a little spot but yeah taking off you need a bit of bit of leg room and a bit of room for error so Harry talked Will and I into doing a... Oh, yeah. You guys went paragliding as well. Oh, my gosh. I just want to tell the listeners this story. And we're standing on, like, this hill. And I'm like, where is the runway? Like, where is it? Like, uh, clearly you need way more space than this. And he so, was like, nope, so, that's it. <laughs> so, so, listeners, for, for reference, this is a, it's a paragliding spot. So, so no engine. Um, you just kind of jump off the side of a hill. And it's at the top. It's a, a sort of semi-flat space that's maybe the size of a five-a-side soccer pitch Mm -hmm. something like that yeah uh, at the top of a vertical cliff uh, that then overlooks the sea and it's very pretty it was very vertical (laughs) so when he basically you have to be in a when you're tandem flying you have to be in a certain position when you're running off the cliff so you have to be like looking forward but like hinged at the hip and I'm like running and we get in the air and I'm like I literally asked the guy 
are we still alive? And he was like, yes, we are. You're fine. Look around. I was like, I can't. Will, Will posted the video of your launch and all that you could hear, even above the wind, was just, <laughs> I just kept saying, are we still alive? Are we still alive? At a really high pitch noise. It was pretty funny. Yeah, it's on my Instagram. If you guys want to go check it out, it's a pretty funny video. And turn the volume up because it's <laughs> definitely hear me screaming the whole time. But I would recommend it. If you, if anyone despite wants, all that. yeah, despite all of that, if anyone wants to try it, it's it's a really, I guess it's the closest feeling that you get to flying, isn't it? Like, I like it. Yeah, you, I can see why. <laughs> Once you were up there, was it pretty quiet after you stopped screaming? It was so quiet, like crazy quiet. You could hear like the birds like flapping next to you. It was so quiet. You're just like, oh my gosh, there's literally no engine on this, and we're being held up. The guy kept saying. We're only being held up by a piece of thread. I was like, can you please stop saying that? (laughs) (laughs) So rolling into the news then, um, there have been a couple of little things. Right after we finished recording the last podcast, there was a massive great big swell that showed up out in Fiji. Probably some of the biggest waves anyone's ever ridden out there. Very, very, very cool footage coming back from that. Do you guys see it? Well, I think everybody probably had their Facebook feeds and Instagram feeds inundated over it. Yeah. A friend of ours at Surf Simply brought a group of people out there for a coaching session. Mm. And I think all they did the whole time, which would equally be as good, is just watch massive Fiji go off. So Yeah, it must be kind of tricky, isn't it? Because that's one of those places where you have to book it a year out. You, know, right. you really don't know what what the swell is going to be like when you got there. And I think, yeah, I think they got there the day before it turned huge. Right. But he did say that, you know, cloud break was massive and, mm-hmm. and very intimidating. But he said restaurants in front of the island was great. It was fun. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I feel like that's just a win-win situation. Like if it's massive, you get to see some of the world's best surfers and some of the world's like most powerful and greatest waves. Yeah, speaking of a world's best surfer, it's pretty interesting that the injured Kelly Slayer oh, yeah. kind of just yeah. turned up and <laughs> had some of the best waves ever there. He pulled out of the contest He pulled again. out of the contest yeah. and, you know, was being injured and then there he was. I love that about him, that he's yeah. just like, there's amazing waves, I'm going to go. His logic was the contest that he pulled out of was the uh, event at Karamas, Karamas in Bali, which is quite a high performance event that, you know, everyone's expecting big on-rail turns and big aerial maneuvers. And his logic was, all I need to do to surf a big wave at Cloudbreak is paddle in, get to my feet and hold my line. I can do that with my foot in the state it is. I can't necessarily do a big wrapping cutback or, or land an air. Which kind of makes sense, but it does feel a little a little weird. I don't know. I think it's cool that he, I mean, that's true surfing. He was looking for the biggest and the best waves and he went and surfed them. Mm-hmm. So I think that's yeah. kind of kind of a cool way of doing it. Yes, indeed. We had two contests run. We'll talk about those in a little bit more detail shortly. But in and, in and of that, we've had a couple of injuries. John John Florence managed to blow both his ACL and LCL at the same time. And Taj Burrow has uh, blown out his ACL as well. I can feel their pain. Um, you have also managed to ding yourself. I've, I've hurt my knee. I've not quite torn, torn a ligament. I've done that in the past. I've done the ACL and I can tell you guys that is super painful. I don't have one anymore, actually. I've just got screws and a bit of uh, muscle regraft in there. Do you really? <laughs> yeah. Oh, cool. So I don't have one anymore. Um, but yeah, I've got a bit of a knee. I hurt myself in Mexico. Um, it's not fun. It's not fun. I mean, when you when your legs tense and you're surfing, you don't feel the pain, but all the muscles around it are constantly working, and it just makes everything else really painful. 
Well, it's one of the really noticeable things. You know, a, a injured knees is pretty much the most common injury within pro surfing. And a huge amount of it comes down. It's one of the things that we teach on quite a regular basis is, is that you really don't want those feet pointed outwards. Which John John incidentally does do a Which lot of the time. John John does do. I mean, it's it's actually, it's a very natural sign. I do it a lot of the time. You know, my back foot particularly, when I stand up, it's just so much more comfortable for that back foot to be pointed, you know, toes back towards the tail. But it means that when you then bend your knees and try and try and keep your knees close together, it just puts so much torsion through those ligaments and, it, and eventually something's going to go. Yeah, we we use that clip of uh, of Rob Machado where he's he has got that back foot pointed out and he's still managing to get his knee nearly touching the board. Yeah, which on a normal human is just too much pressure. And yeah. They're going to give, especially if you're doing big floaters like like the John John floater and then landing like that. It's just a huge amount of pressure. When Tarjes was a floater as well ah. that did it, and Mick Fanning uh, years ago when he blew his his was his hamstring, wasn't it? I think. But yeah, for those of you that are wondering, a really good example is if you look at McFanning and Joel Parkinson, who've both had knee issues in recent years and then both gone through quite intensive rehab. If you look at the, how they use their back foot, they have their back toes pointed toward more towards the nose of the board. And uh, as they shift their weight forwards, they'll actually go up onto their toes to uh, to reduce the amount of torsion, uh, sideways torsion through the knee joint. Just kind of kind of cool little thing to note. Yeah, super cool. So the WSL has started selling the tickets for the World Tour event at the Wave Ranch later this year. The, very similar to how they sold the tickets for the Founders Cup that Rue was at. Yeah, the tickets um, for one day is looking like $99. Which I think is the same as the Founders Cup was. And then the, the two-day tickets are 150 mm-hmm. But they have got this kind of huge VIP package. And the more you get, the more you pay, of course. And it's going up to uh, $9,500 per person. And what do you get for that? That's the full-on resort vacation. So you get the full VIP experience plus a room at the Tachi Palace Hotel. And on the Monday after the event, you get to surf the wave for an entire hour with coaching, a locker and a videographer, everything. Plus, of course, the pre-party and the post-party. There we go. 9000 for an hour. Is that a lot? No idea. That's taken from surfer.com. And then lastly in the news, um, the beaches around the town of Anglet in France, which is in the sort of southwest corner just uh, near Biarritz, they have banned the use of hydrofoil surfboards, towed mm. or paddled. And, and why is that? Uh, well, I think just from a safety perspective, which kind of makes sense. I was, there was someone on the beach with, with one uh, here in Nassara a couple of weeks ago, and I saw him walking down the beach. And that is a massive chunk of metal. You know, if that... If that goes running off somewhere well, it's, it's a blade essentially well i mean so is a fin but at least a fin is quite a small personal blade rather than a four foot I mean, long that looks one. like a machete to me <laughs> that's coming through the water at you um so yeah i'm not i'm not entirely surprised that that they've chosen to do that they go so fast that mm. if they make one mistake like they, i don't know what would happen but it doesn't look good it does. It seems a little bit like when um, when you have people learning to surf big SUPs out in the water. It's not a great thing for a crowded lineup. Mm-hmm. Um, it's go- terrifying. Yeah. <laughs> it can be terrifying seeing those guys trying to get over a wave in front of you, and then they've got you know a ten foot leash, ten foot board, a six foot human. It's a huge swinging radius. Yeah. 
And then the so board's that with like... a huge blade on it as well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I think it's dangerous enough, guys. <laughs> I would like to give one a go, though. A friend of mine posted a little YouTube video of him having a, a little go at it, just flat water being towed behind a jet ski, but just getting a feel for it. Looks hell of a good fun. Yeah, I think like with surfing as a beginner, you can start with, you know, a soft board and then you can go to your mini mile and then you can choose longboard, shortboard and you can progress that way. Mm-hmm. To some extent with SUPS, you can start on big soft ones, but with a with a, um, a hydrofoil, you're just going from beginner to pro on the same bit of kit. <laughs> It'd be great to learn how to generate speed and pump though. Oh yeah. Like you're constantly compressing and extending your body and yeah, that does look super functional. Yeah. I'm just saying, if I was to go out on one of those, I'd be dangerous. <laughs> I would be dangerous. Tommy. I'd be paddling away half a mile down the beach. Tommy, you're dangerous with a shortboard. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Um, so just uh, as, as I mentioned before, we've had uh, a couple of contests. In fact, we've had four contests. Um, we had the men and the women competing at the Corona Bali Protected at uh, Karamas on the, on the East Coast great events um the, the wave didn't look quite as good that the men's ct was there what three or four years ago and they got really really good waves and there's been some trouble with a resort blocking a river or moving a river and it seems to have affected the water flow and the sand but nevertheless i mean the waves looked great that real nice combination again of that barrel section and then that maneuver section Good solid swell, both the men and the women competing in in good solid overhead conditions. Super cool to watch. To me, that's when we got to see the women really express their power. I mean, all of the turns that the girls were doing, they were getting barrels, they were surfing very similar to the men. So I think that was a really cool wave. It's a really great wave to express all of those maneuvers. So I lo- I out of all the contests so far, I really enjoyed watching everyone at that wave. I thought it was a really good addition to the tour. Absolutely. And uh, Italo Ferreira uh, took the win over Michelle Berez, which put Italo Ferreira in the gold jersey going into the next event. Uh, And Lakey Peterson beat Tyler Wright in the women's and also took uh, took the gold jersey for that. And they then rolled on to this kind of specialty event that wasn't really meant to happen, but it was the the continuation of the Margaret River contest that was cancelled. We spoke about that in the previous podcast. That previous event cancelled because of shark sightings. And so they uh, so they jumped over to Uluwatu, which is down on the Buket Peninsula, to finish off that contest. And I thought that was fantastic. There aren't a lot of high-performance left-hand waves on the tour. Mm-hmm. It's really, really good to see. And it's a, it, it's a much less predictable wave in a way than the Karamas wave. You know, some of the waves barrel, some of them don't. Some of them peel really nicely. Some of them kind of shut down just different angles that they hit the reef at. Uh, I thought it made for a, a, a really, really fun competition to watch. It wasn't a full event because obviously they ran all the way through to, I think, round three at Margaret's and then picked up from picked up from there. But William Cardoso beat Julian Wilson in the final. But that finish put Julian Wilson back into the yellow jersey and with a pretty strong lead going into the second half of the tour. But interestingly, behind him is... Philippe Toledo, Brazil. Mm-hmm. Italo Ferreira, Brazil. Yeah. Gabriel Medina, Brazil. <laughs> yeah. And William Cardoso, Brazil. Yeah. So four of the top five at the moment. It is the Brazilian yeah. storm. It is, right? behind <laughs> yeah. Julian Wilson's back. So yeah, that's that's quite an interesting one. And while he is in the lead, you know, it's not a it's not a, a huge lead over any of those guys. Uh, on the women's, Joanne DeFay beat uh, Tatiana Weston Webb in the final. That final was awesome. Very fun to uh, watch. If you listeners haven't seen it yet, yeah, I would. Definitely recommend going back and watching it. Joanna DeFay is like 
maybe my new favorite surfer now just because of that final. Mine as well. That was, I was exciting. The semifinals were fun to watch as well, though. Very exciting. Yeah. That barrel that Tatiana cut. Holy cow. <laughs> Impressive. Yeah, it was really, it was really fun. Again, like, I think that they should keep that, both of those spots for the, especially the women for the future. I thought it was really awesome. Race tracks is just such a cool wave, too. Super fast. Yeah. yeah, very cool to see. So, uh, yeah, that put uh, Lake Peterson now is in the gold jersey just just ahead of Stephanie Gilmore uh, on the ratings. So, um, yeah, next event is going to be J-Bay. And again, men and women competing at J-Bay. I don't think the women have competed there recently. It's only been a, it's only been a stop for the men. Yeah. Huh. Uh, so that's going to be really fun. Big reeling uh, right-hand walls. I feel that's going to play into Stephanie Gilmore's hands quite Ooh. quite strongly. So. I have seen videos of them training there mm -hmm. recently and yeah, they're surfing it pretty well. <laughs> I really hope that they're going to do a revival of that uh, Highline event with the Twin Fins. The twin that fins. Oh, that'd be cool. That was really fun to watch. That, yeah. That I think was one of the, the best parts of the, uh, of the tour last year. That was a fantastic little event. We've been using a lot of that footage for our coaching clips mm. here at Surf Simply. Just really nice functional stances, hands over rails, like just slowing it down a little bit and using that footage to teach others to, you know, just correct that stance, keep the board on rail and bottom turns. And man, it's just such technical surfing on a, on a twin fin, isn't it? Yeah. Now the interesting thing rolling into J Bay is that from this point forwards, you can no longer just tune in and watch the WSL. You mm. must have a Facebook account. I think for most of us, that's not a problem. I think it's only Derek that <laughs> doesn't have Facebook, doesn't like the social internet. Derek keeps himself away. So yeah, they're, they're now f switching over and all the events rolling forward are going to be streamed on the Facebook uh, platform. Uh, if you log in using the app on your phone, it will redirect you to the Facebook stream. But yeah, it means that, that you cannot watch without Facebook account, which presumably means that they are going to be logging data as to who is watching and where they are. And I mean, not that they didn't have some of that already because they'll have had the IP addresses of who's logged in and, and whatever. But presumably they now know exactly who is tuning in to watch. Um, whenever I watch, um, watch it live, I'll watch it through Facebook because that also buffers a lot better. And um, unless I'm, you know, watching the highlights. The only thing I'm wondering is, you know, the thing that I enjoy when I am watching it, it doesn't work if you go full screen, obviously, but, you know, when you open the app up or you go to the WSL website and you've got below that, you've got the scores mm -hmm. just sitting there because um, they're not always on the screen. And if they're switching over to Facebook, how's that going to work? Are we still going to be able to see the scores and see the, the list of the upcoming... Uh, upcoming events i would have thought only on full screen what i'm worried you'll have happen is that you'll click it and you'll open it up to watch it and then you'll have all the, the comments stream and the reaction yeah. stream and you'll yeah. just get that, angry that just real annoying type of comments that you just don't want to even know exist <laughs> like yeah. national comments or whatever they might be I, i'm worried about something like that yeah they're so mean aren't they or some of them can be really really mean well now interesting i was listening to uh dave proden who's uh one of the guys in charge of the wsl of of you know communication and things like that he was on another podcast surf splendor and they were talking about uh some of this stuff because i don't know if you've ever you know and you tune in on facebook and it tells you how many other people are watching yeah and i've always looked at that and gone that's pretty low <laughs> yeah so apparently that is regional so if we're looking at that when when we tune in when we log in from Central America, we're seeing a 
Central America feed, which is also why the adverts are uh, inconsistent. A lot of time you tune in and there's just dead air. They go to an advert and it doesn't go to an advert. It just goes to a WSL banner. Yeah. It's because nobody's bought advertising in Central America. Right. And if you were in Europe or Brazil, there might well be adverts playing. Mm. Huh. Which I had not realized before. I thought that was quite interesting. That's interesting. Do you guys ever watch the WSL app through Apple TV? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I like I think that that runs pretty good. I think you can see all the scores and all that stuff. And mm-hmm. I like if you go back and replay it, that it just makes a video of the whole heat, but just cuts it up into like a five minute piece, which I thought was really cool. Finally, just on the contest front, then we just need to uh, we just need to address the Fantasy Surfer uh, results. I've not done very well. I, I have fallen horribly behind and kept missing not like not building a team in time for the event. I was doing outrageously well at the beginning and now I'm just not at all. I think Harrison and Asher have both overtaken me. Mm. For the Corona, Barley protected. The always pumping mid-coast won the event for the men and Dom Alfano won the women's. Uh, so well done there. And for the uh, Uluwatu event, they then did did do a, a separate event for that from the um, from the Margarets. Uh, Jamie's picks won the event for the men, and uh, Team Front Bums won the event for the women. <laughs> <laughs> nice. I swear, some nice. of these listeners make these teams just to make me say them online. Uh, <laughs> overall, then uh, for the men, Blakey Croyd Bay is in the lead overall and in the women's Alex's picks is in the lead overall so well done guys uh, you have a couple of weeks still to uh, put your team together for J-Bay J-Bay doesn't start until July 2nd so we've got uh, what's that about three weeks we do a lecture every week at Surf Simply that covers the basic concepts that freedivers and big wave surfers use in the water to help them have or embrace the longer hold downs, or for free divers, have a longer time spent underneath the water. Um, we've also had a couple of listener emails about breath holding advice. So I just thought we could spend today talking about some tips and techniques that you can use out surfing, whether it's paddling out and or wiping out. What I would say is that you do a lecture, a fantastic lecture with a huge amount of information that I wouldn't try and tackle just yet but i'm learning i do teach it every week everyone's like can i try i'm like nope this is fine (laughs) um and so this is going to be uh actually sort of a part one of two uh i've got a little piece as well on some some similar stuff about just just techniques and tactics for dealing with those situations when when you can become a little uncomfortable so yeah we're going to talk a little bit about how to improve your uh, your breath holding ability uh in this one and then i'll talk about some some other stuff in a future episode. I just want to let you guys know how this like lecture came about because it's a really cool thing to give you guys advice on too. About five years ago, we were lucky enough to work with a man named Kurt Kroc. He runs Performance Freediving International. So if you guys want to look up Kurt Kroc, um, he's an amazing waterman. I try to even say some of the credentials that he's done and the list just goes on and on and on. But one of the things that I thought was really interesting about him was he was the first person to create a breath hold surf survival course. And we were lucky enough um, five years ago to work with him and, and do some of that training with him on that course. 
and uh, you listeners might have seen some of those courses. He 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 took a whole bunch of the the sort of standard free diving techniques and modified them for shorter repeated breath holds that you might have to deal with with big wave surfing and worked with with Red Bull with a bunch of their athletes and a couple of other companies as well to uh, produce they refer to it as surf survival techniques mm-hmm. um, for, for when those big wave surfers uh, get caught inside and held down by 50 foot waves. Yeah, we got to practice one of those um, drills, didn't we? We were in the pool and basically he would have us go down for 45 seconds being tossed and turned by another person. You came up and then you had 15 seconds to breathe, back down for another 45 seconds, up 10 seconds to breathe back down 45 seconds and then so on till where I think the minimum was like two seconds. And man, it just, well, the reason why I'm bringing this up in the first place is it just gave us so much confidence. I mean, Harry, you remember we would go back out surfing after the course and I have a huge fear of being held under. And I think that's why I like teaching the course at Surf Simply is, you know, I can relate to other people who do have a fear and that course just helped us so much. So I highly recommend either working with Kurt or, you know, taking a free diving course um, at some point. So yeah, let's talk about big wave surfing. It is a thing. People like to actually surf 50 foot waves. (laughs) Um, I personally have no passion to try out big wave surfing. I kind of get made fun of a little bit by Rue and Harry for me being kind of a wuss out in the water, but I do admire it. Um, I love watching the contest. I I follow Paige Elms on Instagram. I think she's incredible. I think Mark Healy is like one of my favorite surfers, but these are not just average surfers. They are a different type of breed. I mean, they have different types of boards that aren't used on your average size waves. They have a different outlook on surfing, like the wipeout every time is going to be different and it could be life or death. They're trained, like free divers are, are trained to be in the water and to go down really deep. They're not just your average surfers, they're, they're trained to be out there and put in those very scary, strong conditions. I think that's one of the things that, that isn't always shown. I think it's something people are more and more aware of now, but the, the guys that are going out there and you know, riding these big waves, it's not, it, it is a different sport from what we do in that I can sit out and not really do anything for a couple of weeks, not surf, not train, pick my board up. I can go out and I can have a, I can have an okay surf. Like I won't surf at the peak of my ability, like I might've been doing previously, but I can go out there and perform just fine with these guys that surf in the big wave realm when they're not surfing they are training really, really hard there. And it's a lot of fitness uh, and a a lot of conditioning to be ready for when they get those big days, because sometimes it is months in between big swell events and they need to be at the peak of of their physical shape when they go out in those conditions. And uh, I I think that's something that that hasn't necessarily been covered so much, but I think people are becoming more and more aware of it now that, that, that there is this whole commitment that's that's required to go and surf waves like that um kurt was explaining to me shane dorian's training process for his hold downs and they were and i'll get more into detail of why they were doing this in just a moment but he basically would do like 45 seconds of jumping jacks push-ups squats like lots of cardio exercises Mm -hmm. then jump in the pool 
and be held down for four minutes and then come back up and do it all over again. Like the process, like you were saying, Harry, of this training is just insane. (laughs) I have no ambition. (laughs) That's very cool. And I'm bringing that heart rate up so high and then having to calm it down while you're being held under. I mean, that's just super impressive to be able to do that. Yeah, crazy training. For this sport to be claimed like an adrenaline sport, it does have a surprisingly low death rate due to drownings from professionals. I just want to make sure that I'm making that clear. From professionals, I think the last death that we've had in big wave surfing was a man named Kirk Passmore, and that was in 2013. I mean, if you look at freediving and competitions with freediving, almost like half of the freedivers are are blacking out, not dying, but they do enter in a stage of blackout. So being underneath the water can be dangerous, but surfing has developed, especially in the last like 10 years, some things that have made it a little bit more safe. Going back to the training, these guys are trained to be relaxed in these sketchy situations. They also are trained in freediving and spearfishing. I think Mark Healy like goes spearfishing when the waves are flat and does freediving courses as well. So they're, like I said, they're not just grabbing a board and going. They are putting themselves through training and, and, and in controlled environments to, to be out there. So how can you improve your breath hold in surfing? If I were to ask Tommy here today um, to hold his breath on land, eventually he's going to give up. Um, if all of us were to hold our breath on land, eventually we're all going to give up. Give up as in taking in oxygen and breathing normally. But what gives us that sort of urge to breathe? It is carbon dioxide, but there's some other reasons that we have this strong urge to breathe. There's discomfort. So like your lungs might feel really, really tight. And then there's also fear. Fear is a, a big one for me. I go into this irrational state of, of holding my breath of, oh no, what's going to happen? But you're, you're getting this urge to breathe because carbon dioxide is, is building up in your body. When we inhale, we inhale 78% nitrogen, 21% oxygen, and 0.04% carbon dioxide. So that oxygen can go around, feed our muscles, our, our bloodstream, our brain, our heart, all of those other things. So as a byproduct, you're having an increase of carbon dioxide in your system. So when we exhale, we exhale 78% nitrogen, 16% oxygen, and 5% carbon dioxide. So as that carbon dioxide rises, you're getting this urge to breathe. And then sometimes that can then spiral down to, to fear and other things. But I like to just go over that that term that it's just an urge and the more comfortable you get with that urge the longer and or more comfortable you can be underneath the water so before moving on I just want to talk about the current world records of breath holding so there's two categories of breath holding there's static apnea and our records are nine minutes and two seconds for a woman and 11 minutes and 35 seconds for a man. And then static apnea with hyperventilation of oxygen. Are you guys ready for this? 24 minutes and three seconds. It's pretty insane, isn't it? Yeah. 
That was done February 2016 in Spain. I don't think I could sit still that long. Yeah, but what they basically do for this competition is they hyperventilate 30 minutes before with with an oxygen tank. And then they lay in a very static, still resting state face down in a pool and hold their breath for well this guy in this case 24 minutes and three seconds and what's the what's the reason why they do it in a pool we'll go over why it's done in a pool in just a moment because that's quite fascinating so there's a couple of things that uh free divers use that big wave surfers have adapted um to help them stay calm and stay down longer when paddling out. So if you're paddling out and you see a wave coming towards you, you can start to prepare for that turtle roll or duck dive, or maybe even a a ditch and dive if the wave is really big. You can use something called purging. This is a series of exhales to help get as much carbon dioxide out. Again, carbon dioxide is what's giving you that urge to breathe. So the more carbon dioxide that you're exhaling, the better off you'll be underneath water, the less of an urge you'll have. So it is a very technical thing. When we did our free diving course to get certified or level one, Bobby didn't even teach us this technique because you're at risk of hyperventilating and raising your heart rate. So there's a lot of videos on like YouTube, on freediving websites that you can practice this. My understanding with it is that with purging, so this is the, the, that classic hyperventilation that you'll have all seen listeners where somebody's breathing very <laughs> short, sharp breaths. So the purpose of purging is that you're dumping air out of your lungs quicker than the oxygen exchange can take place in your blood. So you're producing a carbon dioxide deficit within your lungs. There's a bunch of potential problems with it, especially from a freediving aspect. But my understanding is that with a low breath count, doing it for five or six seconds right. is can give you an advantage with very, very low risk. Right. And then the longer that you do it, you do get increased benefits, but you get the the risks associated with it mm-hmm. can increase much, much quicker right. um, to where you kind of lose the, um, it, <laughs> it becomes more risky than it becomes beneficial. Right, right. If you're paddling out and you're just wanting to focus on like your breath rather than just sort of freaking out, it can help with just calming you down a little bit too. So what you can do is with purging, like I like to tell guests that stay here at Surf Simply, try not to worry so much about the inhale and just worry about getting that that air out of your, or that carbon dioxide, I should say, out of your system. You can also do something called a three-stage inhale, um, which helps us get more air into our lung by maxing out our something that we have called our inspiratory reserve volume. Our inspiratory reserve is the maximum amount of air that you can inhale, and that's 50% of our total lung volume. Our total lung volume can be anywhere from 4 to 6.5 liters on average for male and female. Um, But basically what this is doing is it's allowing us to get more air into our lungs. Now, if you were just to do one big inhale, you're not maxing out that 50%. You're probably getting around 20 to 25% of your air. So by, by having three different sections of your lungs, you're going to get more air in. What you can do to practice this is place one hand on your diaphragm, one hand on your chest, and then the third being the neck. And you can... Your your third hand on your neck. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, sorry. So one hand on your diaphragm, uh, one hand on your chest, and then the third would be your neck without any hands there. (laughs) 
So what, what we're really t- <laughs> what we're really talking about here is, is is not that you have separate sections of your lungs, but but that there are different sets of muscles that control your lungs. And obviously, we all you know everybody knows about the diaphragm, which is a big big muscle that sits in underneath the rib cage, and as that uh, expands and contracts, that draws air into the lungs. You've also got all the intercostal muscles that sit in between the ribs, and as those again expand and contract. Um, and, and the other one is that your your shoulders are actually linked. There are muscles in your shoulders and your collarbones that are actually linked to your lung capacity. And just breathing as you listeners probably are right now, um, you're using all three of those in collaboration. But if you were to take a big inhale, you'll stop when one of those three systems tops out. Mm-hmm. And if you can learn to use them independently, which is kind of, kind of what you're saying, Jesse, if you put a, a hand on your stomach and a hand on your chest, and now try to breathe in and just move your stomach. Have no movement at all in your, in your ribs as you breathe in and out. And then try reversing that and try to make sure that there's as little movement as possible from your diaphragm and that all the expansion and contraction is just coming from uh, the, the muscles between your ribs. If you can isolate those and then use them one, then two, then three, you can you can pretty much guarantee that you're getting getting the maximum capacity out of your lungs. Right. I bet um, yogis are very good at doing this because they can breathe into their legs. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that is science. Yes, they can. <laughs> um, yeah. So this three stage inhale doesn't take very long at all, and you can start this three stage inhale as the wave is coming in and before you duck dive and or turtle roll and get off your board, you can have that, that big breath before going underneath the wave. The other kind of interesting thing of, about breathing into, you know, into that first stage, the lower half of our lungs is there's alveoli found in the bottom half of our lungs, which help with gas exchange. They're in the upper half, but they teach you to breathe into the lower half because there's more clusters of them found down there. It's because your lungs are they're conical shaped. Right. So therefore getting more oxygen into your, your blood and into your muscles. You can see both of these techniques happening in a YouTube clip. I believe Harry can put this in our, I will our put, show notes. I will, uh, I will drop this video into the show notes, yeah. Sweet. And it's called Mark Healy Caught Inside. And you can see him paddling out at a wave at Mavericks um, using that purging that we talked about, as well as that big three-stage inhale before he swims under a 50-foot wave. So it's quite interesting to see. I, when you watch it and you're, you know, you're sat at your desk watching it, you can definitely hold your breath for the amount of time he's underwater. Yeah. But having, you know, being hit by a wave that's, I don't know, maybe eight feet and his is 25 feet, um, it's not that easy. Yeah. It's not that easy. So he's probably working pretty hard to just keep himself calm and to make sure he's holding that breath for as long as he can. I think that's the coolest thing about that video is how calm he is, um, how relaxed he is, how his paddling doesn't change, how his breath, how his purges don't change. He doesn't start hyperventilating. Near the end, he looks a little panicked. Those yeah. eyes are growing a bit. But yeah. yeah, on the whole, he's super calm. Super calm, yeah. It's nice to see because you, you imagine with a 20-foot wave that he'd be down under the water for, I don't know, 10 minutes. And you're like, you have these horrible, fearful moments in your eyes when you see these big wave surfers go down. But actually seeing it, you know, kind of calms your mind a little bit. Right. I don't know. My heart rate's up when I'm watching that. As, <laughs> as I'm watching him do it, it keeps on going higher and higher. It's one of the really uh, fun things, actually, with the amount of drone footage that there now is whenever you have these big wave events. Uh, when they've had the big wave world tour events, the, particularly the one that was at Jaws uh, a couple of years ago when it really was big and there were guys getting washed over the falls and held down. I actually went back and watched a ton of it and the longest hold down I could find. And this was when it was happening live. Mm-hmm. 
it felt like a long time and you were thinking, oh my God, like, where is this guy? Where is he? Where is he? And eventually he'd sort of pop up in the, in the white water and one of the skis would go and pick him up. But the longest I got was 14 and a half seconds. Yeah. Wow. Underwater, which doesn't seem that long sitting, you know, sitting here and saying that, like that was a, that was a heavy wipeout. Uh, during that contest and it was about yeah, 14 and a half, 15 seconds, something like that. But when you're being ragdolled under the yes, water, yeah, oh when, my when goodness, that a long time. Eternity. You lose all concept of time and suddenly you're, ah, yeah, I'm under here. <laughs> I've been here two hours. I've got another two. <laughs> so that kind of brings us on to the next point. Like how can we can prepare for paddling out and going underneath the wave, but can we prepare for a wipeout? Can you get a last breath in? Really in that instance, the answer is like no. Or if you do, Good job. <laughs> um, but the important thing or the cool thing to know is we always have air in our lungs unless our lungs were to collapse and or get punctured. And luckily from the surf statistics of injuries, I haven't seen any punctured lungs due to a surfboard yet. So we're lucky in that department. But this is something called our residual volume. That's 20% of, of air in your lungs on that 45 to six liters of our total lung capacity. Yeah, if you, if you think about it, your, your, your lungs are like a big bag, if you think of it in that way, and they can never be completely deflated because they are physically attached to the chest wall. Um, so there's always going to, even if you breathe all the way out, there's still like quite a good chunk of air uh, stuck in there. Yeah, so this is a good exercise that you can do at home on land. Um, I'm going to say that again, on land, not in the water. Um, that you can see if you can go surf Mavericks and handle that 14 second hold down. But what you can do is you can exhale all of your air out, get as much air out as possible, and then hold your breath and go ahead and time that. See how long you can push past that urge to breathe and, and see how long that is. My time of after an exhale was 45 seconds. Now that is again on land, not being punched around by a 25 foot wave. And then kind of going back to here to Guiones, my longest hold down underneath the water is seven seconds. So I, and I remember I fell from the top of the wave to the bottom. It was a pretty big day. I was really nervous and I got to seven seconds and I was like, huh, I'm okay. So it's a really good exercise to do, to have in your back pocket, to know how long you can hold your breath after a full exhale. It's such good information to know. Should should the listeners be laying down when they do this? Yes, they should. And I will explain <laughs> that in a little bit. Yeah. So yeah, go ahead, lay down, try not to move. Um, and I'll explain why in, in just a moment. Well, I think Teal's big thing was so they don't fall over when they black out. Oh, well, that too. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you might get dizzy too, but. <laughs> um, so how does being underwater help us? Uh, why were these uh, world records done in a pool in that static apnea state? Um, that's because we have something called a mammalian dive reflex, but it's also called a diver's reflex or some of uh, free divers call it the master switch. This diver reflex targets a couple of things. The first thing that it targets um, is your vagus nerve that comes from your brainstem down through your chest and into your heart. And it slows your heart rate down 10 to 30% or up to 50% for most trained individuals. So that's the first thing that is super interesting. Now, I never recommend anyone to hold their breath in the pool unsupervised because it can be very dangerous. But if you guys uh, are in a pool and can actually submerge your face underneath the water, put your hand on your pulse and actually feel your heart rate drop, which is really interesting. 
yeah, and the colder the water, the more the the bigger that effect. Putting your face down in in warm water will slow it down a little bit, but you'll you'll get a very noticeable drop if you put your face if you go face down into a sort of cold outdoor pool one day. Do you think that is affected as well, just from the cold water having all of your blood kind of go away from your extremities too? Or so that the, the, there are secondary things that there's there are things that happen through cold water immersion, and even you know all the way to the extent of cold water shock. But the the dive reflex is is something different altogether, um, and is is just left over as part of our our evolutionary biology. It's it's the same thing that means that you know when you take babies swimming for the first time, and you just stick them underwater and they're fine. They don't suck in loads of water. They don't drown. They don't, it, it's just very natural for a for a small baby to go underwater like that, um, and it's all, it's all just built in. Yeah, and so that's great news for our northerner cold water surfers that you guys will probably have a longer breath hold on a winter day so that's really good um the second thing the blood pressure uh is targeted towards our brain and towards our heart once this diver's reflex is sort of ignited and it sort of takes the blood pressure out of our limbs our arms our legs and sends it to our our brain and our heart okay so there are different uh physiological uh sensations that might happen um, while you're underneath the water. And one of them are convulsions in the or contractions in the diaphragm and in the throat. You might feel this on land while practicing a breath hold. And you also might feel it on a longer hold down underneath a wave, a gulping in the neck. That's completely normal. And again, that's your body reacting to that carbon dioxide building up. Uh, the more you get comfortable with those contractions and con- convulsions in your diaphragm and in, in your neck, the the better you will be. They're just signs and signals sending from your nervous system to your body saying, hey, there's so much carbon dioxide. We need to get oxygen in. in. How long after those convulsions start do you have before you're like, oh, I really do need a breath? So everyone's different. Um, so just to give an example, my first uh, contraction that I get is 30 seconds and I get it in my throat. So it's not exactly every single time, but it's roughly around 30 seconds. And then once like a minute to a minute 15, I start to get them in my diaphragm in which your belly is just sort of jumping up and down. So everyone, you know, reacts to carbon dioxide a little bit different and has different timings of when that stage one of of blackout can occur. The other thing that happens to mostly free divers, and I don't know if, there's been records of that I've heard of, at least, of surfers experiencing this um, from being held underneath from a wave. But there's something that you're it, – it's called a spleen re- release, essentially. And basically, your spleen, after a certain amount of time and depth underneath the water, releases oxygen-rich blood back into your system. And again, that's due to that diver's reflex, which is super interesting. Um, for free divers, I've read a couple books and, and articles. Um, they almost get a sort of euphoric feeling after that spleen release happens. Um, and it usually happens when they're they're heading back up to the surface. But it is a really cool thing to know that your diver's reflex allows your body to give you more oxygen just by releasing blood back into your system. So that's really, really interesting. Um, and then, you know, The word blackout is a little bit scary. So they also call it conservation mode. And that's just going back to your body sort of 
going unconscious, but keeping the blood pressure in the brain and the heart, like I mentioned earlier. So when you black out or go into conservation mode, basically your vocal cords stop any water. They sort of tie off and stop any water from going down and entering in your lungs, which is, is really cool. Um, so when you pull someone out of the water, they should have little or no water found in their, their lungs. So let's talk a little bit about once you're under the wave, what to do, what are some tips and techniques? Um, and the first thing that we sort of recommend is try not to move when you're underneath the water. This is because muscles require energy for movement. Uh, we get energy from the food that we eat and that gets broken down into a digestive process. That then gets turned into a certain type of sugar called glucose. Glucose gets turned into ATP, which is adenosine triphosphate through cellular respiration. So when we're underneath the water due to this process, any movement as a byproduct is going to create carbon dioxide. And anaerobic movement is going to create a little bit of carbon dioxide and lactic acid. So essentially what I just said is the more you move, the more that urge to breathe is going to get stronger and stronger and stronger. The best thing that you can do or what I do when I'm underneath is, well, one, relax, try not to move. Um, Tommy and I were talking about which songs we sing underneath the water to keep us calm. I, uh, I go back to um, some Jurassic 5 rap. And I <laughs> notice that my rapping gets faster and faster and faster and faster. <laughs> yeah. Come on, end of the song. Come on. <laughs> you can open your eyes if you know, you're surfing a really clear, beautiful wave. If you don't wear contacts, of course, because those might get ripped out. I would say opening your eyes really, really helps. It just puts this sense of calm in your body. You can clearly see where up is and where, well, most of the time you can clearly see where up is and where down is. And that really helps as well. Yeah. Um, I like counting. I'm a big fan because I know I have like 45 seconds before I have to start to worry about anything. Um, and once I get to like six seconds or five seconds, I'm like already You're up out. already, right? Yeah. yeah. So that's super comforting. Some things that you guys can do to practice at home and we teach the clients that serve simply, the guests that serve simply in our lecture is we purge for about five to seven seconds and then we move right into the three-stage inhale. After the three-stage inhale, you can hold your breath and then go ahead and time that and you can get a sense of how long your breath hold is. Just going to say this again, make sure you're not doing this in the pool, um, that you're doing this on land, like Teal said, laying down <laughs> so no one gets hurt. Also laying down helps us just not use energy and more oxygen. I've found it very cool sitting in on your lecture. When you first do it and you have people hold their breath before they do any of the exercises, mm -hmm. and then after they go through the exercises, the drastic change of the amount of time that you can go without breathing yeah. is significant. Yeah. Like, and I, I know that a lot of people come out and they're just like, I didn't know I could hold my breath for that long. They were doing it for a minute and then they go to two minutes and 15 seconds yeah. just by changing up and doing the exercises. What's really cool is like people with like a lower resting heart rate usually have like a longer breath hold because 15% of oxygen consumption comes from a higher heart rate. And so like people who naturally have that lower heart rate tend to hold their breath for like up to three minutes, like in the classroom, which is really, really interesting. But yeah, it, it's really cool. I, I think it is one of the, one of the fun things that the more you do this, the easier it gets. Right. When we did the course, uh, you know, a few years ago with Kirk, 
one of the things he was saying is, you know, the, those those little contractions that you start to get, um, you know, the little um, gulping sensation or your, your stomach kind of wobbling around a little. Just relax. Just get used to it. Don't worry about it. It's fine. It's just a natural physiological response to a buildup of carbon dioxide. And as soon as you start getting comfortable with that, it's amazing how far people can push themselves. You're listening to the Surf Simply podcast. As I mentioned earlier, over our most recent break, I headed out to Mexico, a place called Saladita in Oaxaca. I, I was going to go and, you know, see the last day of the um, the contest that Asher was in, the Mexilog Fest, but um, he convinced me to, you know, book an earlier flight. So we, we got to hang out for a couple of days. Um, at that point, it was in the last 16. Um, so some of the the best surfers really was were still surfing and it was incredible to watch while the contest was on and then when the contest wasn't on you'd paddle out and there was including the women there's about a hundred of the best longboarders in the world there and wave after the way this wave works it's like a conveyor belt it's just wave after wave of amazing surfing and if you're too tired to surf you kind of just paddle out in the channel and you just sit and watch and each time you see someone on a wave you're, you're just like i didn't know that was possible i didn't know people could do that so for the most part, I was watching. Of course, I, you know, you guys know me. I, I did get some waves. I got a few. <laughs> got I got lots pictures. of waves. And it got to the point where on day two, I was exhausted. And I had my camera with me and I decided, well, you know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to film this. This is a pretty unique opportunity seeing this kind of surfing. And this is a lot of the stuff we coach and we can see it done in, you know, a multitude of different, different ways. So I took my camera down and I was on the beach and I was filming. I didn't have a tripod, so, you know, very wonky filming. And I got together all these clips and I was like, wow, this is great. And I just kind of threw a couple of them up onto my Instagram. And then the next day I was in a, in a, in a restaurant just using the Wi-Fi. And I look up and some guy is saying, hi, Tommy, um, my, na- my name's CJ Nelson. And I was like, oh. I know who you are. (laughs) Um, So I was kind of like a bit taken aback and a bit flustered. Um, But after I calmed myself down and we got chatting, he actually um, invited me to, to, you know, hang out with him and go surf some different waves. And I was like, and I can also film you if you like. And he was like, yeah, cool. We can film some stuff. There's some really exciting stuff that I've, I've been working on in my own surfing. And, you know, I want to put it out to the world. So it came to that we went and we surfed some different spots. We surfed at Saladita as well. I spent a lot of time filming him. It meant that I also got to meet uh, the Roxy team, which was pretty exciting. <laughs> a lot of very good surfers there as well. And yeah, so on the on the final day, hanging out with CJ and, and his friends, he uh, invited me back to his house. Um, he's, he's got a place there. Him and his brother share a house there. And we had some breakfast. And, you know, he's showing me all these different boards he's got there and this is just one place he hangs out and he's got a multitude of boards he's got boards everywhere and we're talking about fins um and I got the chance you know to you know ask him for for an interview for 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 you guys for the listeners because for me he's one of my favorite surfers and he always has been but also for us to just have his take on um on longboarding and on how the contest was run um, and it was a it was a really really interesting interview. After he'd left for the rest of my time there, I bumped into some of our some of our ex guests um, and you know current guests. They're going to come back, Cheryl and Leon. Hi guys, I know you guys listen to the podcast. Hey guys. And they were also you know surfing fantastically at that point when they arrived. The surf was pretty big, so it was you know just like we were talking about. It was it was pretty daunting, but it was great to see those guys giving it a really good go. So yeah, um, here's the interview. I'm sorry, listeners, I was a little bit nervous at first. Hopefully I warmed into it and, and you can listen to it and enjoy it. 
So uh, welcome everyone. I'm here in Saladita. I'm in the house of CJ Nelson. It is well. It's my brother's house. It's called Casa Tram, and it's, this is where I stay when I come here. Yeah, it's a beautiful house. Um, how, how long have you been coming here? Uh, first time I came here was in the late '90s. So I don't know how many years ago that was, but quite a few. Yeah. Um, and you've been coming to this house? You've had this for that long, or has you recently built this? We actually bought this from a friend um, who lives in Texas. He he built it as a vacation home, and then he uh, kind of got over being here, so we got it. Good find. Yeah. Yeah, it's a nice house. What made you first come to this to this place? Um, actually, a, an older uh, guy who still lives here named Tim Dorsey. He was like a a 60s Waimea Bay kind of like North Shore pioneer surfer. And he ended up here. Um, and then in the 90s, he sent a message to a friend of mine or my friend, maybe my friend sent him a message asking about this area. Um, we were doing an article for Longboard Magazine and um, this was this was the spot. So we came here and I immediately, I mean, it was way different. There was nobody here. There's no houses. Lourdes was, um, who, whom's like the, you know, the princess of the point here. Her family owns it. So when we came here, um, she was like the only person here. And the, the wave still is good or was it? Yeah. It, the wave looked the same and I flipped out, you know, I was like, holy crap, I found the place, you know, and I, back then I didn't never thought like, oh, you know, I'm going to get a house here someday or whatever. It just, it all kind of organically happened. But I knew this, this was a place that I always wanted to return to. Yeah. I've been here like a week and a half and two or three days when that wave just links up the whole way along the bay. Mm -hmm. It's pretty incredible. It is. It's a special, it's a special wave. It's not the best wave in the world for a shortboard, but for a kind of a traditional longboard, it's a really good wave. Um, so how long have you been here this trip? Uh, this is seven weeks or something seven weeks yeah so you've been living here yeah that's usually about how long i like to stay sometimes longer yeah yeah so you were here for the uh the mexi log fest i came to to surf really but um a few of my my youngster buddies uh were competing in the event this year and i wanted to be here to help kind of coach them through the event and you know um just be supportive for some kids i care about and how did they do they did good. Uh, n none of them made the main event, but um, they all learned a lot. And, you know, we talked about all their heats and analyzed where they made mistakes and all, all that type of stuff. So they learned a lot. And, um, you know, next year, I'm sure they'll, they'll, uh, they'll be back. I mean, it was quite a good, you know, 70 surfers in the, in the men's, was it? 70 surfers, yeah. And, you know, pretty, pretty good surfers. What were the, uh, the big take-homes for those kids you were, you were working with? Um, the big learning points you know competition is so different than just expressing yourself on a surfboard there's so much mentally that goes into it you know from maybe getting intimidated by some of the better guys during free surf sessions or um you know not being aggressive enough in the heat to hold your ground and get those set waves you need you know there's a lot of i mean you have to be strong-minded to do some of these things you know and uh it's hard, you know, it's hard for some of these younger kids to, to put all, put the whole package together. They are great surfers and they're, they have their competitive moments where they do good, but like to consistently bang out heat after heat after heat, it takes a, there's a little bit of an art to it, you know. In the, in the first part you were surfing against everyone. Right. 
Can the you, first three rounds. How did that format work? Um, just top, you know, top two waves in, over uh, three heats, and then added up, and uh, the top sixteen went through. So each surfer surfed three heats, yeah, and they were all surfing against each other. Essentially, yeah, yeah, basically. So it's a it's a cool format because you get to surf more than one time rather than coming down here and losing in your first heat. But in my opinion, I'd rather it be that old fashioned way. I don't like these courtesy heats, you know, because you're kind of like, well, who am I surfing against? And like, does it matter if this guy's doing good in my heat or, you know, what am I watching? You know, I'd rather just like get in the ring and personally bang it out, you know? And, um, so not my not my format choice. And also, surely, if you have a heat when there's good waves, you're kind of through. And if, if you don't, yeah, it's got nothing to do yeah. with your surfing and how you surfed in that moment. Exactly. Very interesting. You didn't enter. No, I've, you know, last year winning both those events um, at 43 years old with, you know, all the people in the event were like half my age. You know, it was a good time for me to just exit yeah. um, with my with my head held high. It was really rewarding, you know, coming to this special place that I've loved for so many years and being able to end my career here just wasn't going to happen again that way. And I recognized that when it happened and I just knew that that was great and I should I should step down. So I have. So that's the end of competing. That's it for me, man. I'm done. Wow. Okay. Okay. It's a shame, but what's next? Um, for me, you know, another reason why I wanted to stop competing was because I'm just sick of riding these traditional heavy, you know, like the boards we have to ride in these events are, are basically 60s recreations. And I've been riding those boards for so long and, and uh, I feel like I've really gotten everything I can get out of those boards. And just to be the complete surfer I want to be, I just got to stop. I mean, I can ride those boards from time to time, but I want to expand my horizons, like the boards that you've seen me riding on this trip. I've been watching you surf pretty intently. Um, You've been surfing very differently. I've seen you do maybe one or two nose rides in the last couple of days. Yeah, and and I'm consciously trying to not nose ride. I'm trying to, I mean, nose riding is so one dimensional. You know, and if you take off on a wave and you're like, oh, I'm looking for a nose ride, I'm looking for a nose ride, you're not surfing. Yeah. And nose riding, you know, it feels good, but it's almost like sometimes I feel like people do it for the spectator. It's not for the pilot, right? And so I really want to take my surfing and personalize it and really make it about me, not anybody else watching it. So moving in this direction, I think, is may not be so rewarding for... Uh, the fans, but I feel like I've given a You've lot. You've given to the fans. Yeah, and it's time for me to take care of me. Oh, well, that's great. So you see this as a sort of a new chapter in your surfing, but also in your life? A new chapter just to like ride equipment that's, I just want to be free. I, I don't want people to be like, oh, you got to ride a single fin in this event, or you got to ride 50-50 rails, or it has to be 20 pounds. Like, no, dude. No, <laughs> I just want to do what I want to do. And, um, you know, hopefully people can respect that and look at it and um, and still enjoy watching my surfing and my, my other journeys. Um, and just, uh, yeah, for me, it's 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 rewarding. It's already rewarding. It's been three weeks and I'm like, I feel like I've grown as a surfer.
let, leaving those boards behind. That's refreshing to hear. Um, so with this kind of new new branch of your surfing, have you started using different equipment? Totally. Um, I'm riding boards that aren't designed around nose riding. I'm riding fins that are, um, you know, specifically designed for my body weight and, and turning. Um, hand foils from Chuck Ames, uh, Volan fins. Uh, and I'm riding, you know, boards with edge in the tail, flatter boards. Mm-hmm. Are these are these all boards you've been shaping yourself, or have you been working with other I people? I just work with shapers. I, I I never really wanted to be somebody who's stuck in a shaping room, but I have great friends that are amazing shapers, and I I, I enjoy working with them on on ideas that I have, you know. So yeah, I'm riding totally different equipment, and it's been a lot of fun. Immediately changing my life. Um, talk to me about fins. I've, I've had a lot of discussions, you know, uh, as the co- competition was going on as well about the different kinds of fins. What, what are you trying to use at the moment? Well, you know, it all goes back to, to Nat Young, you know, in, in the 66 world titles when George Greeno was like, Nat, I'm going to put this fin, this, 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 you know, tuna looking fin on your board. And, uh, you know, everybody at, up until that point had kind of been riding these really kind of like swept back thick foils and D fins and pivot fins and just not getting anything out of them because they're just kind of designed around pivoting and nose riding and really surfing the bottom of your surfboard. But when George made that fin for Magic Sam and Nat, Nat's board, you know, it was like, oh, this flexes. He, it's a, called a biomimicry you know it's like taking something in nature and applying it to you know something that you useful you know like if you're taking a leaf and making a surfboard template out of it or something but so yeah nat did it and uh won the title and um that was actually like the first time anybody rode a longboard and just really focus on turning and that fin is basically the same fin i'm riding today it's a like greeno 4a or a greeno stage one and it's uh, it's helping to turn a lot a lot better. Yeah, I mean, I think that it's probably the most prolific fin in in uh, surfboard history. You know, like anybody who puts that on their surfboard, their board's going to work better. Mm-hmm. I don't know uh, what you think, but I feel that with this uh, traditional movement that we're having at the moment, slowly but surely, everything is going to start changing back towards being able to turn boards more, being able to get more out of each wave and each different section. On the yeah. Wave. Like some, if some guy, you know, who's an intermediate surfer is like, I just want to get a log, you know, chances are he's going to get on that thing and it's going to look really cool under his arm and on top of his car. And, you know, it's going to be a real cool fashion piece. But if you want to get out and make waves on it and really surf, it ain't going to, it's not going to happen. Agree more. It's not going to happen. I think it's time in longboarding to put function first. You know, it's been fashion first for the last eight years, and that looks really cool on paper and on Instagram. But when it's a personal relationship between you, your board, and the ocean, who cares about Instagram? You know, like if you go out and make waves from the top of the point to the bottom, or you're getting in and out of tubes on every wave, then you're on the right equipment. If you're not, maybe you should think twice and don't, don't drink all the Kool-Aid, you know? Yeah. I think we, we kind of saw that just, just with our finalists in the Mexi log fest. Yeah. You know, it wasn't just those traditional big famous Instagram people. There was actually 
uh, it was Dakota, mm-hmm. you know, performance longboarder. Yeah. And the, the two boys from Hawaii, they also mix it up as well. Yeah. So that was quite a nice, nice to see that that was in the Maxi Log Fest as well. Well, single fin logging and like the whole culture and whatever, you know, like I'm not in this for the culture. I'm in this with blinders on to do what I want to do in the water. You know, you can have the culture, you know, it's not really what it should be about. Although a lot of people would disagree with that, but that's not why I surf. You know, I don't surf for that. I surf because it feels good. And if the board doesn't feel really, really, really good, then I'm not going to ride it. And uh, that's kind of just the evolution, I think, of anybody who's a conscious surfer, who's in touch with their ability and their the sensation of surfing, will end up on the right board. Yeah. But you got to leave that fashion crap behind. For sure. So, um, so you're about to go to the airport. What's the, uh, what's the next step for you? Next, next week, you know, good South Swell in Santa Cruz. So surf at home a little bit, be there for two weeks. Then I'm headed to Malibu for a month. I'm helping with this, um, the Relic, uh, Longboard Pro event, um, doing just some consulting and some judging stuff. So I'll be there, Malibu for the month of June. Um, just shredding and uh, welcoming the people from around the world. And That's going to be a huge contest this year. It's going to be great. Yeah, it's enormous. It's great to see them, you know, including all all, all kinds of longboarding as well. Yeah, we really wanted to just give a platform to um, the whole, you know, population of longboarders. You don't want to just. It's kind of we've been divided, you know, for so long between single fin, traditional, high performance, and. You know, if you take a small sport like longboarding and then you break it in half, then it's even small. Then it's like a very small group of people. Yeah. If you can kind of combine it all, it's just more more eyes on everything as a whole, you know, on our sport. Um, the competitors being mature and in, in like unifying it. And, you know, you don't have to like the way people surf, but don't dislike the them as a person because they surf that way like at least get to know them you know and and you know don't make judgment calls on the way people surf you know like there's there's a lot of people that i wouldn't want to surf the way they surf but that doesn't mean they're not beautiful individuals and dear dear friends of mine yeah and i think that um we've kind of been taught to judge each other in longboard surfing and not you know, just because you're riding a super light two plus one doesn't mean you're my enemy. You know, you're still my brother. We yeah. just choose to do different stuff. You know, no, I think that's a really good positive message for everyone. Yeah. So um, with the surf relic, how did how did that contest come about? How did that start? Uh, just a good friend of mine from Los Angeles um, wanted to he was really tired of kind of watching longboarding be the way it is and just wanted to see what would happen if we could unify some some crew and. Um, yeah, he reached out to me and I, I helped out. Um, and there's some other great people behind it and he's just a good guy. And, um, he's really, you know, there's no, no money in this for him personally or anybody working on it. It's a labor of love and just hoping to, uh, make the, make the situation better. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the best of luck with that. Thank you. It's going to be a huge event. Yeah. I hope you get the swell like you got last year. It's going to be good. Yeah. We're stoked. I mean, no matter what, we're, we're um, going to have a good time. So, Perfect. 
Thank you very much for your time. Thank you for your hospitality and for hanging out and surfing for the last couple of days. Absolutely. And it's been a uh, pleasure. right back at you. Cool. It's been fun. Thank you. We got a listener email from Mike Scott, who had written us. He says, hello, lads and ladies. I have a quick question about the technique for pushing my kids into unbroken waves. Ideally, I let them paddle for their own waves. However, sometimes to extend a session, I'll push them in when they get tired or the wind picks up. We surf in Ireland, so both problems are never far away. When I can touch the bottom, there is no problem. But as the water gets deeper, I push from in the water, and I'm unsure if she's going forward or I'm going backwards. As an avid fan of your tutorials and YouTube channel, my 12-year-old noticed that you push people in from on the board. I've watched a lot of clips hoping to see the process in full, but only ever catch the very last part. Any advice you have would be great. Thanks, Mike. So, Mike, coming from Florida, where I did quite a bit of my coaching, the beach break that I surfed and that I coached at, I was able to stand for most of it. So when coming to Nosara, learning to push people in on a longboard was quite fun and quite challenging at the same time. So my suggestion is what you want to do is when you see the wave that you're going to push your your child in on is you paddle behind them. You want to get enough momentum that you're going to be able to have the speed to push them into the wave. And then that way they're going to go ahead and have that momentum carry forward into the wave. And you know you both will be going forward at that point. That being said, what I would differentiate from pushing adults into waves and pushing children into waves, with pushing adults, it's a big, you know, push and shove. Whereas with kids, it's more of a like a caress and just holding them steadily as they drop down. They're, they're not that heavy. I've always found too, by catching the wave with the person that you're pushing in before that wave gets too steep, but yet still moving forward, it still has a little bit of steepness to catch that wave with them and that helps with that forward momentum of For pushing sure. that person in. If you're pushing them before you've caught the wave, it's just all on your own strength by that point, which, you know, can be a little difficult. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It, it helping people catch unbroken waves is really, really tricky. Like, like Mike said, if you're, if you're in, uh, if you've got your feet on the sand and you're catching whitewater, it's super, super easy. The, the, the generally recommended technique is actually to stand in front of somebody and hold the nose of their board so that you've got a really clear view of what the wave's doing. They can see you and, and can be relaxed uh, about what's going on. And then you can just pull their board into the wave and, and let them roll past. It also gives you a shot. Uh, if you don't pull them quite fast enough, you've got a second push as they <laughs> as they go past. You can get the hand on the tail and give them a second push. Once they're out the back, it is really hard. And, and especially if you're swimming, like you said, Mike, as you push them forwards, you're going to push yourself backwards. So a really good thing, if you're not on a surfboard, try to be swimming forwards because the, fo- the more momentum that you have going towards the beach – the, the more of that's going to get transferred through through to the person that you're pushing. So if, if you're just sitting still in the water and you put a hand on the board and you just straighten your arm, 
that's going to do a certain amount. If you're physically swimming forwards and then give them a push, that's going to really, really help. Another thing I would add uh, to this, and presumably you do this anyway, but when you start as, you know, with your 12-year-old, as you as a pair, when you start this learning process of learning how to do this, start in less steep waves so that it's easy enough for you to feel confident catching the wave behind them with with them in front of you and then help push them into the wave to catch it and progress that way to the to the faster, you know, the steeper waves, at which point you'll probably find just with them having that confidence and security of expecting your push, you're actually able to not even do that push. You're able to just kind of talk them into it. And the wave is at that point steep enough to give them that push that they need and they get used to it that way. I think if, if you're if you're doing this on a regular basis, you know, for all the coaches, when, when they come out here, one of the things that I try to emphasize is, is that you really want to be kind of as Jesse and Teal have both mentioned, you, you want to catch the wave yourself on the surfboard. You want to use the fact that you're on a big high volume surfboard and that you are a stronger paddler to catch the wave when it's still very, very soft. And you can then transfer your momentum into the other person. So by getting your hand onto the tail of their board and what you're almost going to do is is push yourself off the back of the wave as you transfer them onto the wave. It does take a little bit of figuring out. It does take a little bit of timing and a little bit of, of, of organizing. But what you don't want, the, the ideal is that you're not using the muscles of your arm and your shoulder to push too much because if you're doing it on a regular basis, eventually you're going to, you're going to hurt yourself. So when I'm coming up behind someone, I'll have my, my arm at about sort of 90 degrees, um, with my elbow, my elbow at about 90 degrees. And just as the, as my hand makes contact with the back of their board, I'll pretty much just, just very, very gently straighten my arm. It's not a big shove. I'm just gently straightening my arm and, and almost kind of pressing down on the tail of the board with my with my uh, knees to slow the board to slow my board down as I push them forwards. Um just some warnings for you, Mike, and for the rest of the listeners. Um there's been a couple of times where we as coaches have gotten legs caught in the leash. Yeah. And um, arms, arms. arms. cotton and leash or a watch. So whichever hand or arm you're using, make sure you take your watch off. Make sure there's like no bracelets or anything on there and try to, uh, rather than being directly behind them, you can be just off center from them to where the, just the arms behind the tail and the rest of your body is to the left or to the right of the leash. Um, just so you don't get caught in that we've had a couple of Teal and I have had a couple of conversations about bruises and close calls just due to that leash. So you might also, if you're on a shorter board, you also might get a fin caught in the leash. So it's really good to ride a longer board than what your your kid or your student is using just so you don't end up ripping a fin box out or, you know, losing a pair of fins or, or something like that. Yeah, I think that's a really great point. I mean, for, for all of us, it's pretty obvious that we're going to paddle alongside and push, but for you, it might not have been. So yeah, definitely come alongside and don't just, you know, push with your nose into their tail, if you like. The other thing too is I know there has been a couple of times that you end up going over the falls with whoever you're pushing. (laughs) Um, And in order to prevent that as well, sometimes you have to just hop off your board as you have that momentum still going forward in order that you don't go over the falls with the person too. Yeah. This can be progressed as well. Like if your 12 year old wants to start paddling into his or her own waves, 
uh, is if you paddle directly next to them and have them keep up with the same speed that you are doing to catch in order to catch the wave. So you position yourself, start paddling for the wave and ask your student or your kid to keep up with you. And then they should have that same speed that you do. And then ultimately catch the wave because you can't push them into waves forever. They got to learn on their own. And that's a nice sort of visual way for them to progress with surfing. Yeah. And the, the final thing is exactly as Jesse said, you, the, the aim with all this is to build independence out in the water. So when someone's paddling for a wave, what you want to be doing is is encouraging them to look back over their shoulder, see what the wave's doing, encouraging them to make their own decisions to paddle in time. And the push is there to make up for when they make a mistake. A surf lesson would get pretty dull if we just went out there and tried to paddle for a wave and missed and tried to paddle for a wave and missed and tried to paddle for a wave and missed. So it's a lot more fun to go out there and have the coach just give you that little push, get you into the wave, give you that that like enjoyable experience. But what we want to be training people to understand is that if they felt that push, they probably wouldn't have caught the wave under their own steam and that they they therefore need to paddle a little harder to where they don't feel the push. The flip side to that is you as as the coach or you know as the as the parent need to get into the habit of not necessarily pushing straight away. It's really easy. You, you'll see someone they're paddling and they're probably going to catch the wave and that instinct is still there to put your hand on the back of the board and give them a big shove and get them in that little bit earlier because it's easier. But that can actually then make it harder for them to learn whether they would have caught the wave or not. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're looking for that lift of the tail, not necessarily like that push um, from you. So that's a big thing to, um, talk about and, and for the future. Okay. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, that is pretty much all we've got time for. As always, we have our what to watch section, a few little video edits just to keep you guys entertained until we are back. I will put these up on, on the show notes. You can find those at surfsimplycom slash podcast. Um, my edit is going to be, it's called on and on. It is a Peter Davery's edit from, uh, from up in Canada somewhere. I really like I like his surfing. I think it's really cool to see someone surfing that high performance in five mil of rubber and boots and hood and gloves and all the rest of it. But I also just think that coastline, whenever I see his video edits, that coastline just looks so beautiful. Um, it's somewhere I'd love to go and explore one day. Uh, so anyway, yeah, that's that's my little, uh, little choice. Jesse? Um, I have a what to read. Ooh, so just, how sophisticated. I know. Uh, so just an inspiration of the breath hold chat that we talked about today. Um, Teal and I both have read a book called Deep by James Nestor. As have I. Oh, and Harry. I can't read. I'll <laughs> <laughs> we'll um, give it to you an audiobook. <laughs> it's a perspective of a guy who did who knew nothing about free diving and walked into the free diving world and and wrote about a wrote a book about it. Um, it talks about how people found out about the diver's reflex, um, what free divers do in competitions, how free diving's used for um, learning about sharks and, and dolphins. It's a really beautiful book. You can also hear uh, an interview with uh, James about the book on uh, our good friend Shelby's podcast, Wild Ideas Worth Living, um, which if you're interested in this sort of thing, uh, she does some pretty cool interviews with, with lots of people that do outdoorsy sort of stuff. If you want to watch something, we have our freediving course from five years ago on YouTube. Oh, yeah, that's um, pretty funny. Just, it's so <laughs> funny, all of us, five years ago. So it's on YouTube. It's just called Sir Simply Freediving Course. Uh, Tommy? Um, so those of you who listen to the podcast regularly, 
um, won't be surprised to hear that I'm recommending some Brazilian longboarding again. Um, <laughs> again from Caio Teixeira, who I actually met in Mexico. I came home with one of his fins too. Um, and I met the guy who filmed this, Felipe Dutati, who sent me some pictures. And I met the editor, Pedro Scansetti. This is awesome. Again, it's exciting. It's it's different. It's not your, your, your usual longboarding flick. Um, Teal and I particularly liked the hanging 10 with hands in pockets. That was awesome. That's pretty cool. <laughs> so yeah, some, some exciting longboarding to watch there. Very cool. And Teal, what was your edit? My edit is Red Eye with featuring Rob Machado and Taylor Knox. It was, they were surfing in France and just very cool surfing as usual by I love Rob Machado and watching him surf the go fish is always fun. Alrighty then. Well, before we go, um, if uh, if anyone has any comments or suggestions for stuff they'd like to see on the show, you can email me at podcast at surfsimply.com. Uh, you can also find these guys on their uh, social media feeds. Jesse, how do we find you? I love saying this. Carnita Jessita 22 on Instagram. Very good. Teal? Mine is Teal B and it's T-E-A-L-E-B. There we go. And Tommy? And I'm at Tommy Potterton on Instagram and Twitter. Alrighty. Well, for now then, from all of us here, goodbye. Bye. 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 Thank you. That was the Surf Simply podcast from the Surf Simply Coaching Resort in Costa Rica. For more about Surf Simply's video coaching courses for experienced surfers and technical coaching for entry-level surfers, go to surfsimply.com.